Hello everyone, welcome to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast. My name is Avid Kaa and I talk about how you can start, run and sell the bootstrap business. This episode is called Avoiding the Validation Trap. Let's get started. So when founders talk about validation, we often engage in wishful thinking. We say that we want to validate an idea or an audience or a problem, but in reality, we hope to find a way to be sure. We hope to discover a guaranteed win, like a surefire way to build a successful business. I believe that there is no such thing. A business is always a risky undertaking. That's what entrepreneurship is. It's an undertaking, an attempt to do something new and trying to create something from nothing. Entrepreneurship involves the risk of failure at all times. We might start with an idea that attracts no attention, or we might create the wrong product for the right audience. That uncertainty is why we focus so much on trying to validate our assumptions. But we approach validation the wrong way. We try to find statements and figures and opinions that agree with our assumptions. We try to make sure that we are right. If we see enough agreement or confirmation, we think we must be doing the right thing, that our theory is correct. And here's the catch. Theories cannot be proven. Even if you find a million reasons you're right, it only requires a single valid counterexample to disprove the whole theory. So there's a German philosopher of science called Karl Popper, and he calls this falsification. A theory has to be falsifiable and cannot be verified completely. We can only claim it has to be valid because rigorously attempted falsification did not yield any results. So what does that mean in business terms? You can spend weeks or months trying to find people who maybe want to buy your product eventually. Or instead, you could try to find out why people don't need it, why they wouldn't buy it. You can dive into prior attempts by other founders who ventured to solve the same problem and failed. Or you can build a functional prototype and ask people to try and pay for it and then see if they actually do. And if they don't, why they wouldn't. These actions will produce real results compared to the nebulous feeling of validation that asking people if they like your idea would create, right? You want real actionable data. You're better off trying to quickly invalidate your assumptions than trying to validate them. Every theory that you can invalidate is one less mistake waiting to happen. And you probably have a lot of theories in the beginning when you start with the business, right? A lot of assumptions. And one by one, if you can invalidate them, then something else must be true. So you're inching closer to the truth. And if you fail to invalidate a theory, however much you try and you spend a lot of effort on it and it still doesn't seem like you can invalidate it, well, then you're left with something useful that you can actually start to work on. The secret of validation is understanding that you can never be sure. You can only become less uncertain. There's a big difference. You can never be certain. You could just reduce the uncertainty. And for an entrepreneur, that is an important distinction because it impacts how we weigh the risks of our actions. If you knew that something was guaranteed, you'd likely skip building safety mechanisms into the product or into the business or even looking at alternatives altogether. You would just think, oh yeah, this is fine. This is going to be happening anyway, so why look at alternatives? And I think that is precisely why founders who misunderstand validation still fail, even though our validation results are promising when we 
do them, right? When we go out and try to validate it. And then lots of people say, yeah, that's awesome. And we live in this fictional world of a validated result. Um, we often mistake promises for assurance. And that leads to some form of entrepreneurial tunnel vision. Because the assumptions that were validated that way are not questions anymore. Because somebody said they love it. Somebody said they would pay for it. Well, then that must be true. And if we don't think of this as just a promise, but if we mistake it for an assurance, then we are having a problem because then products that we build are built on shaky foundations. Foundations that could crumble at all times. And we've had that in the reality of business, that businesses crumble because we only looked at the happy path, but forgot to consider all the things that we don't want to happen and then act to make these things not happen in the future. So validation through invalidation, through trying to falsify things, is like taking a block of marble and just carving away at it until the statue emerges, right? You're taking away everything that doesn't work until you're left with something that does. So eventually that statue will emerge. It might just be a different statue than the one you set out to carve because if you try to validate an idea, then the idea is already set. If you go at it from an invalidation perspective, then you're flexible, your idea can change, and you can adapt to what you learn is true or false about your assumptions. So let me talk a bit today about my past experiences with validation, and in particular where I messed up, because that's the most interesting stuff. So there was a couple of startups that I was part of before I was successful with Feedback Panda. And I'm going to talk about two of them today. One of them is a local food marketplace that we founded in Berlin, a couple of friends and I. The other one is a photo distribution software that another group of friends and I founded while I lived in Berlin here as well. Let me talk about the local food marketplace. The whole idea was we provide a marketplace, a two-sided marketplace, where farmers from the surrounding area of Berlin could sell their food to foodies and hipsters in the city who are interested in locally grown produce and locally raised cattle and that kind of stuff. Just really build a marketplace for food. And our validation, now in retrospect, was horrible. Like, we, we failed on every single front. And I think... Um, let me start with the thing that is most surprising kind of validation that we got. We got funding in, in a sense, like there was a EU program, I think it was called Horizon 2020 and the European Union kind of tried to fund smart city, um, businesses and stuff like that, just to make Europe more interesting for startups. And that was a funding approach, an accelerator in the city of Hamburg, and they accepted us and our idea and they actually gave us money. And once they did that, and, and it was enough money to actually hire a couple people that they, they paid for um, those kind of people that we hired, we were like, oh yeah, it must be a great idea. I mean, if they give us money, then that must be worth something, right? That must be valid that somebody must think that this can actually go someplace. So we were completely blinded by this external validation that we got from this a bureaucratic funding organization, um, which we should have completely dismissed because at no point... Was there ever a farmer or a foodie in that kind of funding structure? Right? Nobody who our business was actually for was involved with that. So no matter what the European Union might have thought about a product or what the people who operated that accelerator might have thought about a product, we should have looked at what farmers and what foodies thought of our product, which we didn't because we thought, oh yeah, 
somebody is giving us money, must be good enough. And we really didn't talk to our customers, our prospective customers and our prospective vendors, the farmers, to find their pain points at all. Right? We just asked a couple of them if they'd like a marketplace. And if you tell somebody that you're going to create an amazing product, why, why would they ever say no? Farmers want to sell their food. Foodies want to eat food. So of course, they would say, yeah, sure, try building this and then I'll see. There's not much of validation because essentially they're just saying if there was something that would be great for me and great for everybody involved, I would use it. Well, yeah, duh, obviously, right? It's just not any meaningful thing that comes out of a conversation like this. And again, I, I, I said this before, we had two audiences. We had farmers and foodies and they're very distinct. They're very different. And we didn't really investigate either of them. Um, in retrospect, we found out that there was a lot of um, issue with how we approach this. Like, look at this, farmers, right? You have a farmer, um, let's say they, they one, of, one of the farmers that was really working with us a lot was farming pumpkins and uh, strawberries, I guess, too. Um, and we were in close contact with the guy. He lived a couple hours outside of Berlin. But we never really talked about his day-to-day. We only talked about how he would like a product to be, but we never asked him about his workflow. And it turns out he's a farmer. He's out there in the fields, like tending to his vegetables and tending to the things that he's growing. He doesn't have a computer out there. He may not even have a phone. And if he has a phone, is he really going to use like the, the web on the phone or is he just using it for like calls for his logistics and for people to pick up produce and something like that? We never thought about like the technical equipment that a farmer would have during their day-to-day workflow. So building a complicated desktop-based administration panel, as we did, was totally pointless because the farmer would maybe have half an hour a day that he would even spend inside and not spend time on the computer putting information into a complex mask of input fields, right? It's just we, we built something for people who didn't have the time and or capability to use the product, which led to a marketplace that didn't have many farmers, obviously, because not many people actually put the time in to put their vegetables in there, upload photos of them, set a price and all these things. Didn't happen because we never validated our approach to how we would get farmers onto the platform. We didn't have onboarding because we didn't have anything to onboard them into. We just expect them to use what we had and thought was good enough. Well, it wasn't. So that was farmers, total mess. And for foodies, we also messed it up because we never talked to them about what they really wanted in a marketplace. We just assumed. We assumed that they wanted a certain kind of workflow, that they wanted to have a good search and filtering for stuff. And we built that. But what we figured out, what people really wanted was a lot of payment options. We were in Germany, right? And Germany is not a country that is known for their credit card um, system. Most people, many people don't have credit cards in Germany. That means for an online marketplace, you would have to support either PayPal or what we call Sofortüberweisung, which is like an instant uh, debit transfer in Germany that allows you to immediately send money from your account to another account. And all that stuff was way too complicated for us. So we kind of skipped it. We assumed that they would be fine to pay in cash on delivery or to pay an invoice in some way by sending money to an account manually without having it integrated into the marketing, uh, not the marketing, but the marketplace um, platform itself. And 
that that was really not well thought out because obviously if you want if you're a foodie now in retrospect i understand that everything the whole thing needs to be convenient and super easy when it comes to the workflow from coming to the marketplace to selecting your food to paying for it to getting it delivered every single step and we had a nice interface where you could get your stuff and put it into a basket and and a shopping basket and then you could buy it but there was no way of paying didn't have a paypal didn't have anything else we assumed that people would hopefully maybe pay an invoice or pay on cash on delivery and that is where everybody canceled that's where where everybody stopped with their order every order fell off at that point because that was the most important part that people actually were looking for on an online business like an online marketplace to have the payment and delivery part being extremely easy and convenient and we messed up we just didn't look into that as much as we should have done um yeah and if you have two audiences in a two-sided marketplace and you missed a mark on both well then the marketplace goes nowhere and it didn't right we started the, the just marketing for our prototype we got a couple people in we got a couple farmers to sign up and put their their produce on but it was not enough and we didn't get many people actually ordering from um, the marketplace website because people just didn't see the point of ordering something that they then manually would have to pay. That is like what you would have done with eBay purchases in the late 90s. But it's not what you wanted to do in 2014 or 15 when we started that platform. So it failed. It has since pivoted into something else like a monthly box, food box subscription for B2B. But the original local food marketplace didn't go anywhere because our validation approach was pretty much not there at all. We believed too much in external validation that we got from the funding, the EU funding, and we completely missed actually validating our customers in the field. So that one didn't work. So what failed with the photo distribution software? Because that was a much more sassy business. And that is usually easier to validate, you would think. So the idea of behind this photo distribution software was it was a file distribution platform for embedded journalists, photojournalists. Imagine you are somewhere in, I don't know, the Middle East covering some kind of war or some political story, and you're out there in the desert, you're taking photos of something, probably combat or places that just had combat happen, and then you want to send the photos that you took to a news agency so that people in other places in the world can see what's going on. And those people would need to upload their photos. But if you're a photojournalist, you essentially try to sell to as many agencies as possible because you try to get the best price for your photos and you get like exclusivity rights for the people who take your photo first and all that stuff. So there's money to be made by putting your photo into a lot of different agencies' um, repositories where those photos land which is essentially an FTP server, but don't have to go into the specifics of that. Um, but if you're in the field, if you're in the, in the desert and you only have a satellite uplink with your um, computer, which is very expensive and very slow, sending the same photo, which is a high-risk photo, to multiple places takes a lot of time and is super expensive. So what we wanted to build is a platform that would essentially multiplex one upload into many, many uploads to those agency servers, right? People would send us their photos, we would automatically distribute them to all the agencies that they wanted to put it into. And that was a really good idea. Um, the founding team had a photojournalist who was a co-founder and 
we trusted him because he said this is what photojournalists need and what my colleagues would use. But the problem is he wasn't actively doing that job anymore. He was now working in a marketing agency. And in retrospect, we should have made sure that we should have had the prototype tested by an embedded photojournalist somewhere while we built it. Not much later when we had already finished with building what we thought it should be. So we have this disconnect between what the pe- what people in the business think should be done and with what people in the field actually need. And it, it went even further. We at some point hired a designer to build a much better interface for us or conceptualize it. But it was a designer who had no connections to photojournalists and didn't talk to them much, but he was just highly acclaimed. And we trusted his reputation to produce good work. We didn't never validate it with potential customers, and he didn't validate his designs with potential customers. He just applied what he thought um, was a good design to a product that he didn't really truly understand. So what came out was a product that really didn't make a splash in the community. People didn't use it. They looked at it. They felt not not for us, too complicated, or not solving my immediate problem. So we really didn't know because we, I personally, as the person building it, I never talked to any of these people. Never, never talked to a photojournalist other than the co-founder who wasn't doing it anymore. So the validation was uh, very disconnected from the product as well. We trusted a designer just on his reputation, not on his attempt at actually building a product with the people who would eventually use it. And we didn't validate with people in the field because we assumed that we knew everything by having a co-founder that was already established in the field in the past. So there you go. It just didn't happen at that point, right? We kind of trusted that past experience would give us insight into future needs, which you never should. Like future needs need the input from all kinds of different perspectives, not just the ones that you may have from your own past experience. So let's talk about when validation actually worked out well. And that was with Feedback Panda, where we flipped this around and we made sure that once we had a prototype that we could dog food because Feedback Panda was a tool that we built, um, Danielle and I built, because Danielle would use it in her job as an English online teacher. Once we had that, we released it to our, our prospective customers. Like once it worked for her, we released it and we made sure that it worked for other people as well. And from the start, we kept in really close contact with our first customers, the, the kind of, yeah, early adopters, if you call them that, the, the kind of innovators um, in that space, because there was a lot of English teachers who wouldn't look at it because they just didn't know what it was. They would do their student feedback the old-fashioned way. So it took a couple of hundreds of customers that were more eager to try out new things to come to our product and give us some insight into their work workflow and day-to-day activities. And we got very insightful feedback from both their usage patterns, like how they use the product and their questions, right? They're kind of, how does this work? Or how would I do this? That helped us build a knowledge base, which then later allowed us to automate support, making it easier to run the business on just two people and not having to hire early. And it also heavily influenced the feature roadmap of the product. Because if you have a lot of early adopters talk to you about the same thing that they always run into, then this might actually be something that the later people who are not as vocal might also run into. So you build something to solve that problem right there and then. And honestly, the the biggest part was that product decisions and product design decisions were so much less uncertain 
when we had reliable information on what our users wanted to do and what they did in the app. So having actual people use your product or use the prototype or having a conversation about the problems and needs, that's what validation is about. Not thinking about what you thought a couple months ago this might need or a couple years ago when you last did the job or when somebody tells you they're really great at something. No, what you need is a direct connection with your prospective customers, your real customers, and talk about what they feel is a problem right there and then in the moment and how you can solve it. That's validation. And even then, like I said, you can never completely validate it. You only can invalidate your assumptions. So always approach these kind of conversations with the idea of trying to find fault in what you are thinking and what you're considering to do. Try figuring out what could go wrong if you did this, not what might go right if it worked, right? Because if you try to find things that go wrong and there's nothing there, then the likelihood of it actually being right is pretty high. And that's where you want to go. That's what you want to accomplish is to find the thing that you thought about a lot, you try to poke holes in it, and it didn't blow up. That very likely is the thing that is going to work. Thank you for listening to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast today. You can find me on Twitter at Avid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L, and you can check out the blog at thebootstrapfounder.com. You can find my book, Zero to Sold, at zerotosoldbook.com. If you have questions about this episode, reach out on Twitter or send an email to arvid at thebootstrapfounder.com. If you want to support me in the Bootstrap Founder Podcast, please leave a rating and a review by going to ratethispodcast.com slash founder. It'll help other founders and founders-to-be to find the podcast and learn more about starting, running, and selling their bootstrap businesses. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.